0: It's not about can we do it. It was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no, and then when someone said yes, I was like, "What? <laughs> I actually, you want to do this?" I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other.
1: The whole world is like, "What exactly have you smoked again?"
0: This is the Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital-raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Today on The Raise, it's the conclusion of my chat with James Bezadee, the CEO and co-founder of Kintel. James is a wealth of knowledge and a man of great analogies. Last time in part one, James shared how he vetted his co-founder and how he decided that a safe note was the best fundraising option for Kintel. If you missed it, you can listen to it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Today, James shares the steps Kintel took to win the much coveted Accelerating Commercialization Grant that is worth over a half million dollars and what to do when an investor is not ready to invest in your startup. Let's jump into that Tesla and hear what James has to share. I'm loving all these analogies. I'm going to now ask you about the hitchhiking one <laughs> which is the government grants. So sure. In February of this year Kintel was awarded over half a million dollars in the accelerating commercialization grant which is a federal government funded matching grant that helps Australian businesses scale and enter new international markets. It's an extremely lucrative grant and also one that's extremely competitive. What did the application process look like for Kintel?
1: The application was lengthy and lots of paperwork. How long did you have um, to
0: wait for the car to come by?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a point. Yeah, wait for the car to come by and you get on it. But it's a free ride, right? So no complaint. We're extremely lucky in Australia with Australian federal government, knowing that there is a giant chasm in the ecosystem of funding where there is a little bit of angel money. So we have angels. On that part, the ecosystem is good. The angels... They take the risk, they write those first checks, and their money is limited, right? So you get a 50K, 150K sort of checks. Then there is the later stage companies that they can go to the VCs where they have proven the product market fit. But there is this chasm, by the way, there is a good book I recommend people reading, Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, which explains this process of going from the early adopters to the mass market. That process is... Usually takes time and usually it takes a lot of iterations to to get things right. And that stage, someone needs to fund it. (laughs) Things don't work by themselves. You need engineers, you need raw materials if you're a hardware type of company, and it takes some iterations to get that R&D right. And accelerating commercialization is intended to address this gap in the ecosystem where a company has to raise money from angels, usually from angels. And then the federal government matches that funding dollar to dollar. So, for example, if you're asking for half a million dollar, you have to have that half a million dollar in the bank, or at least in some sort of guarantee that you have that money. In the past, uh, it used to be a lot more. Canva, the Australian unicorn, they they got a lot more than a million dollar, but now they have capped it at uh, a million dollar. In terms of competitiveness, we know that 8% of the companies get it or so. And then if you're a software company, you have a tougher job because the committee is a lot more strict on software ideas. So arguably, we're probably in the top 2%, 1%. And then if you take into account all of those other companies that officially didn't apply because they couldn't raise the match funding, then the percentage that success rate will go way under 1%. So it's really tough to get it. But if you get it, it's very good. It's free money. And also you become the portfolio company of Australian federal government, which also helps with uh, securing next round of funding. One of the companies that we know that just the back of their AC grant, they close a $50 million round. So it could go a long mile.
0: So did you prepare those applications yourself or did you have consultants help you?
1: No, uh, we did it ourselves. There are some companies that offer these services and they take a percentage of the money that you get as a fee for their consulting services. Being PhDs and yeah, being a bit strong headed, we said that, nah, we're not going to give a dollar of this money to anyone we just do it ourselves so i did all the numbers and jane did all the writing it's a lot of writing you have to be very good at coming up with good analogies <laughs> or good storytelling so that you have to imagine that assessor when they read your application they have no understanding whatsoever what your business you as a founder you live with your idea you sleep you wake up and you breathe that idea but Those people, they don't know anything about your company and they don't know your market. They don't know your customers. And you have to be able to convey that message in as simple as possible language, yet commercially in a language that does make sense that, yeah, this could make a lot of money, so we should support this company. So we did the write-up ourselves and the number part is also complicated, But we were in luck. I have a PhD in computational math, so it wasn't that hard to build the models and get the numbers right. Essentially, what they want to know is they want to know that the company can stay liquid in the duration of the funding, which whatever duration you put in. So if you can put it as one year, one year, if you put it as two years, two year. And the other thing to take into account is that It's not like you go to the government and say, hey, give us a million dollars. You have to say we have this specific project that we want funding for, which means you have to have some extra money to run everything else. So this makes it quite challenging because as a startup, you have to calculate your runway and then exactly calculate what part of the runway burn, cash burn, is going to be allocated to the AC grant. And by the way, you have to do all of this months in advance. You have to take into account that from the time that you apply to the time you know that you have got the grant is a good. So for us, we lodged the application in October and we were notified of the outcome in Feb. But you have to also remember that we got in touch in probably April or May with the public advisor that would help you to put the application together. So it's many months before you actually submit the application. And one thing you should take into account is that as a startup, you go and raise. So the timing is very important, right? So it's true that it's a free ride and you're hitchhiking, but for example, You have to time your hitchhiking at a time of the day that there are more cars passing by, right? You don't go on a highway, I don't know, at 3 a.m. and expect that there is a rush of cars and nobody's going anywhere at that time. And the timing is critical because let's say you raise a million dollars and let's say your cash burn is 100K per month. Then if it takes six months to submit the application you've already lost $600,000 of the cash that you could have had in the bank. So you have to take all of these parameters into account when you're putting the application together.
0: So for Kintel, were you planning to do a raise after you got the grant? They match what you raise? Or had you already had a raise in progress that you were going to match with the grant?
1: No, there are different ways to do this. For us specifically, for Kintel, We started the conversation with the public advisor when we knew that we have raised almost half of the money that we wanted to raise. And we got a conditional yes from one of the major investors in the round, but we still didn't know for sure that we would have this money. And we couldn't wait until we have that money because of what I said before. So we just triggered the application process earlier and we got lucky and that investor money came through. And therefore, at the time of the submission, we had the funds that we wanted in the application. There is another way which the government doesn't like it, but maybe they approve you, which is you say that, yeah, we're going to raise this money <laughs> and let's apply. And, mm-hmm. and one of the first questions, have you got the funds? And then <laughs> turns out you haven't got the funds <laughs> and they hate it. Therefore, the solution is to have it in writing. So for instance, one way is that we are in conversation with these investors and they have said, if you close this company, we would give you the money and this would give that guarantee. Or it could be the proceeds from a sales that we are going to close this customer and this much of funding could come through. And therefore, this would be possible to match these sales revenue.
0: So do they look at traction?
1: Yes. So that's the other thing. The process for applying for AC is that you have to get in touch with one of these public advisors, public facilitators, or AC grant facilitators. That AC grant facilitator would look at your idea and they are quite experienced. We hit the jackpot. We were super lucky that we had Maureen Murphy as our public facilitator, which she's a very seasoned executive and she has been doing AC grant for many years. So we were extremely lucky to have her as our public facilitator. And the idea of Kintel resonated well with her and she totally see what we're trying to do and she supported us. From her perspective, the idea does make sense. And also for the sake of the AC grant, if for instance, you are At the pre-traction stage, it's very hard to get through. So you should be at this point in that chasm part, right? You -hmm. should have the proof of your technology that this works. So you can't be at this stage that I just have this beautiful pitch deck that I'm going to build this team. I'm going to build this product. You have to have the team in place. You have to have an MVP of the product in place. And you have demonstrated the capability that this can be built. And I am the one that is going to build this. Also, you have to be able to convince them that there is some sort of defensibility about this business. You can't just get the taxpayers' money and build something so that you build something and put it out there. The whole point of the AC grant is to accelerate the commercialization of the business. And that usually comes with the proof of technology, a little bit of traction so that there is this proof point and comfort for those committee members to approve taxpayer money to go to this company. You have to put yourself in their shoes. The last thing they want is that give Kintel money and tomorrow, next day after Kinto gets the money, uh, you see James buying a Ferrari and <laughs> say that, yeah, we have the money. So you have to be a legit company with legit traction and legit technology. I think that's the challenge. So that's why the timing of this uh, highway hitchhike is very important.
0: That's so much useful information. Thanks for unpacking that, James. I do have an enduring picture in my head, though, of you riding in a Tesla with your hand out the window (laughs) (laughs) hitchhiking, but it's been very, very helpful. James, what's one thing you can share with founders who are thinking about raising capital or embarking on the capital raising journey? I think
1: cap raising is hard. It's very difficult because media likes to talk about cap raising because it's fancy right and especially for the growth stage companies it's very attractive to talk about it because none of the conventional metrics of the public markets would apply to a private company so if you go on a stock exchange and you try to trade a publicly available company like google or amazon the metrics are very clear that this company is making this much money and it's losing this much money. And you have all of that information publicly available, but from a private company, there is nothing available on the public records for good reasons, for competition. For example, you, you have to make sure that your information is private. And that's why the company stays private. But then the problem with this is that media usually picks up on a scale-ups and they call them a startup <laughs> and that's the myth that's the problem of media for example media picks up on the latest round of fundraising of canva and say well this is a startup raised 200 million dollars and you're like sitting there and you're watching that. It's like uh canva is not a startup canva is a scale-up they have revenue they have customers they have everything a startup is a company that has nothing and they're going to raise money and when a company reaches to the scale of a stage, it just becomes a positive virtuous cycle that it attracts investors. There is inbound interest. And usually the rounds are oversubscribed, which means that those investors that don't get in, they would be waiting for the next round so that you don't have a problem raising money anymore. But zooming back to when you're a startup, it's very difficult because you believe in it. And you have started this company. Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, he has a very good analogy. He says starting up a company is like having a box of an airplane kit in your hand and you go and jump off on, on the edge of a cliff and jump off. And then while you're f- free falling, you try to assemble this plane before hitting the ground and fly on the fly. And that's hard. Hmm. That's very hard. When you go to an investor in the early days of starting up, they know you have jumped off the cliff. They know that you're going to hit the ground and die. But they also have to part ways with their money. And it's very difficult decision for them because there is no traction. Or you have traction and maybe it's not in their comfort zone of belief system that this is good enough, that this is going to take off. I should go in now. And if it's up to the investors, they would always like to wait and see what happens and then come in. And as a startup founder, you have to try to get them in as fast as you can. So that's the challenge. As a startup founder, you want to make things work fast because you know that the markets are moving and you have to get things going really fast. And back to the analogy of Reid Hoffman and as an investor you'd like to take things slow because you may want to just invest in three companies in a year and you would like to meet with 200 of them so that you pick the right one now what i would like to tell the founders is move on too bad if that investor doesn't see the point of your startup doesn't see the point of you taking this leap of faith jumping off the cliff it's their loss and you should talk to many other investors and there will be investors out there that will see the point of your story and they will believe in you and they will give you money i recommend using safe as a way of cap raising because of all the reasons we discussed before back in the days when we were trying to raise safe people were hesitant to invest on safe and we have to educate the investors what's safe and how it's different to convertible note or price round but these days, it's commonly accepted. So that was right decision at the time. But it was something that you could easily say that, well, the investors don't like it and maybe I should go with what they like. Whereas our approach was that, no, 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 we move on. If they don't like it, they don't like it. This is fine. We respect their choice, but we should do it. What's right for the company?
0: Move on and having that self-belief. James, I'd like to finish off with what I call the quick six, which is six rapid fire questions. Okay. I've remixed some of these from some of my favorite interviewers. So your favorite work from home, lunch or snack?
1: The lunch is easier because I don't have lunch. I only have dinner. I try to save all the time I can, so productive throughout the day without lunch. But a snack, let's go with apple.
0: Apple, very healthy. What's a great book that you've read recently?
1: Oh, man, that's hard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or it doesn't need to be recently
1: i quite liked the book on reed Hastings of netflix i don't remember the name but there's two books on netflix i think both of them are good one of them is written by i think mark randolph the co-founder of netflix the original ceo yeah he has written a whole book on the history of netflix so that's pretty documented he's the founder and there's another one just on reed Hastings the other co-founder of Netflix, which is very interesting. There are a lot of documented stuff about his journey and how Netflix became the company that is today. Hmm.
0: A documentary, a podcast that you've watched or listened to recently that you would recommend?
1: Documentary, there's a very good one on Netflix. It's called Magic Fungi or something. It's about mushrooms and fungi. It's Hmm. (laughs) mind-blowing. You know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they say that dolphins, they commission the planet and humans and everything as if like they're the ultimate intelligence on our planet. But I think the mushrooms are, they're not quite a plant or animal. They're somewhere in between. Mm. Yeah, very fascinating, very interesting. Mm. podcast. uh, we crashed. It's like six episodes or something. It's very short. It's a limited edition. It's just a one-off thing. And it's very well done.
0: What's the most useful good or service that you've brought in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less?
1: It's not $100. It's like the Apple AirPods. Yeah, it got rid of all the wires and problems that I had with headphones in my pocket. Now, yeah, it's clean and simple and you just put it in my ear. The downside of it is that sometimes it drops. <laughs> right. so you have to look for it. But, yeah, it's worth it.
0: I need to upgrade away from the wires. I'm still doing that unraveling wire thing every time I pick up my headphones yeah
1: definitely worth it and (laughs) I think the delight moment with these AirPods on your mobile screen when you open the lid it shows the battery and all of that and it connects wirelessly so yeah they, they have done a great job at Apple
0: cool what's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now
1: there is a very good, uh, so for the background, Jane is Chinese and originally Chinese. Uh, we are both Australian, we're imports, but originally from China. And there is a very good Chinese band, but unfortunately, I don't know the name, so that's useless. Yeah, she's saying the name, but I can't pronounce that. So.
0: <laughs> You'll have to send us the spelling for that so <laughs> I can look it up. <laughs> what sort of They're music?
1: Just, super talented and they're they're a very good rock band they're coming from this working class background they used to sell cds on the side of the street but they become musicians they listen to these musics and they haven't been to university or college or education formal education about music but they're super talented i don't understand the lyrics but the, (laughs) the music is just awesome and jane says that the lyrics are good too
0: I was going to ask whether they speak in English, whether they sing in English or No, 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 no.
1: they are speaking a special dialect uh, in Guangdong province, uh, not quite Cantonese. It's somewhere close to Cantonese, but they also have a lot of Mandarin ones. Mm. Apparently, the spell is WU and then T-I-A-O and then R-E-N, so Wu Tiao Ren, Mm. which means five people.
0: Can you find them on Spotify?
1: I listen to them on YouTube music, but pretty sure they should be there too. I can right. send you the link afterwards. The sort of music that these days I keep finding myself listening to is it, they're just absolutely talented.
0: Awesome. We'll look them up. I love foreign music. James, when you think of the word successful, who do you think of and why?
1: It depends on from which lens you look at it. If you want to look at it from the lens of professional success, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, I have huge respect for what they have done. If you want to look at it from perspective of family, my parents, <laughs> and yeah, it really depends on the lens from which angle you want to define success. Mm.
0: And why do you say Larry Page and Sergey Brin?
1: Back in the day when they started Google for those again, Those first time founders that uh, probably are in their 20s, early 20s, they might not remember this, but in 90s, search was very painful. There were companies like AltaVista and Yahoo and MSN that they had these homepages full of pictures, and it was very slow on those dial-up modems. The search was optimized not for the end user but for selling more ads and it was very horrible experience and they come and they start this company with a white background there is no ads and nothing and just a text box in the middle and you search and you get the results that are relevant and the reason i have a lot of respect for them was because they looked at the problem of search and they said that well, there are 16 other companies that have already done this and we are the 17th or something. It was more than 10 companies that have tried search and they were not the first one in the world to do it. But we're going to do it properly. We're going to make money out of this. And they also made a lot of money out of it. The other reason that I really liked them as success, although they dropped out of their PhD, they didn't complete their PhD, but they were academics and they made Google sort of fancy university type of campus with all of that money that they were printing from advertising side of their business so they really are exceptional founders they're very special type of people they created a company that could attract so many talented engineers. They created a, a special type of culture in Silicon Valley. You have to take into account the time that they were operating as well. So these days, yeah, like any startup is adopting those principles. But back in '90s, that was a special time. You also have to take into account that in '90s it was the end of internet with the '99 bust of the .dot com boom. So. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, internet is over. That's it. Like, don't talk about the internet anymore. But they believed that, no, actually, you could do a lot of things on the internet. And they built a company around that.
0: And why do you say your parents?
1: They're my role models on having a relationship, long-term, lifetime partnership and warmth and taking care of each other and also raising us. The kids, me and my siblings, it's very hard. It's very hard work. I think in a way, so <laughs> one last analogy, <laughs> if you think about any parent, they are a startup founder and their startup is their child. And they have to raise this child and graduate it to an IPO, which is, yeah, now you're 18, you're gonna go to university and off you go. And in Asian countries, it probably is 30, not 18. So it's a bit longer. But raising the kids through those years, is a lot of hard work and it's very challenging. The only difference between parents being a startup founders and real startup founders is for parents, there is a lot of support. Ecosystems have evolved over centuries. You have the family institutions, your grandparents and uncles and aunties that would support you. Government supports you. But yeah, as a startup founder, the whole world is looking at you and it's like, what's wrong with you? Why do you want to quit your full-time job? Why do you want to start up this company? Whereas if you're a parent and you have a child, everyone's like, yay, congratulations, you have a baby. That's great. But I think it doesn't make it any easy. It is still a tough job raising kids. They have done a great job raising us with all those difficulties. And yeah, they're my heroes. (laughs) I love them.
0: It's wonderful. And I love that analogy. The other difference between being a startup founder and raising a child is when your child IPOs, So when they go off at 18 or whatever, you actually don't get a windfall <laughs>
1: as a parent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you do, but it's like a, it's not monetary or financial. It's yeah. like everyone is like, oh, look at your kid, what they have become. Oh, they have become a Steve Jobs or Larry Page of the world. What a great parent. (laughs) But, yeah, not necessarily is going to give you a windfall, yeah.
0: We'll have links to your contact details and details for Kintel in our show notes. This has been fantastic. I am very grateful for you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru product from the expert team at MetasLaw. Law. Create kick-ass capital raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising story.